Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek. We are so glad that you have come with us, come to be with us on this day when the weather has finally changed. And it's not just fall on the calendar, but it seems like it might be fall outside. That's kind of nice as well. Ted has already mentioned that we are going to begin a new sermon series this morning. I'm really excited about that, and I'm excited that you're here for the first uh, in, that, in that series. And then as I was thinking about how to sort of introduce it and how to kind of talk about this new series, uh, I, I remembered that a little over a year ago, Caroline and I collectively made the decision that we ought to have the interior of our home repainted. And um, for any of you who have gone through that, you know the joy that comes with that of, of pushing all of the things that you own in your house to the center of the room and then covering that with plastic and then walking around that for an indefinite period of time while, that, while, the, while the room's getting... The, the joy of that is exceeded only by the attempt to try to figure out what the color is going to be that you're going to put on the wall. And so I remember one time I came home, and, and, and this was before everything had gotten put to the middle, but, but there was these little cards on the wall, different shades of the same color, but they were there. And, and, and Caroline was looking at them. And so I just kind of came in and stood next to her, and together we collectively had a moment where we just looked at those cards. And then she asked the question, which one of these do you like the best? And you know what I said. I said, honey, I like whichever one you like the best. Because I have been married long enough to know that as it pertains to things like that, her opinion is really the only one that matters. At the end of the day, her opinion is the only one that counts. Well, this morning we are going to begin a new sermon series entitled Letters from the Lord. And as the series title suggests, these are letters that came from the Lord Jesus and they were written to seven churches that existed in the first century uh, world, the late first century, and in part of what the, the Roman-controlled area of Asia Minor in what is today known as the country of Turkey. And as we will see again and again in our study from these letters, the Lord not only commends, but He also corrects these churches at various points. And we will come to realize that His assessments and His evaluations are the uh, not only of those seven churches, but also of this church, of Ivy Creek, and, and of each of us as individuals that make up Ivy Creek, what we will understand is that the Lord's assessments and His evaluations are the only ones that really matter. You might have already ascertained from our, our text this morning and from what Ted had said earlier that our text for, for this series of sermons is going to come from the book of Revelation chapter 2, and three, and, and more accurately, what we understand is that uh, from chapter 1, verse 1, is that this is actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the apocalypsis. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's how the book even begins. And this revelation was ultimately given to a man named John to write down and, and then to send to the churches. In fact, the Lord tells John in chapter 1, verse 11, He says, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. 
Jesus goes on to instruct John in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now, most of us, I think, when we, when we think of the book of Revelation, we normally probably always think or we, we tend to think of future events. And, and so we should because I believe from chapter 4 through chapter 22, that the book unveils for us exactly that. The things that according to chapter 1, verse 19, which will take place after this. In other words, it reveals to us the things that the Lord will do with the world in the future. But in Revelation 2 and 3, before John writes about those things which will take place after this, we read about the things which are. And we read about those things that are occurring in the seven letters to the seven churches, seven real churches. But beginning today, what we're going to do is we're going to investigate those seven letters, one per week, uh, Lord willing. And, and because, as we've already noted from the first verse of this book, it tells us that the overarching theme of the book of Revelation is to reveal who Jesus Christ is. And so what I want us to understand is that we have a context in which these letters occur. And that's the first point that I want you to note on your outline that you should have gotten there in your bulletin. I'm doing something today I don't think I've ever done. I've got seven points in one sermon. So hang with me. We're going to go. But they all begin with C, so it should be easy for you. But, but the context is the first one I want you to see. And, and the context, really, there are two parts to it. First of all, the first part is the revelation. Since this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, then what we know is that these seven letters are designed to reveal Christ. To us. In fact, each of these seven letters begins with a description of Christ. And one of the main benefits then of studying these letters will be to help us to get to know Christ better. But that's not all. In fact, note the next word there on your outline. The context is not only the revelation, but it's also revival. You see, as we study these, these chapters, we're going to come to see that these seven letters are designed to revive the church. Even though they were written to seven particular local churches that no longer exist, these letters still apply to us today. In fact, as, as we study through them, I believe we'll recognize that these letters from the Lord actually reveal a picture of the various conditions that many churches still find themselves facing today. Consequently, Jesus says again and again at the close of His letters, He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, Jesus wanted every church to pay attention to what He said to each of these individual churches. And as such, we reveal that these letters can revive our church as well. And, and then let me say this by way of context. What we read and what we will study over the next several weeks are what Jesus thinks about the church. These are His assessments. These are his words. And brothers and sisters, because as chapter 1 verse 5 tells us, he is the firstborn of the dead. He's the one who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood. And since Jesus reveals himself to be the one who walks among the seven lampstands, which are the churches, and he exercises his authority over those churches, well then, brothers and sisters, his assessment and his opinion with regard to the churches are the only one that matters. So with that as an introduction to our series, let's read the first letter together this morning. The read to, the, to the, the church there in Ephesus. Hear the word of God to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity that you have given us to come to this place at this time and open your infallible, inerrant word and be able to read it and to be able to allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us through it. And I pray that we as your people, as we are gathered around your open word, would have ears to hear just as you call us to do. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are open to the work of your spirit as you begin to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Help us to to push out all the distractions that may be vying for attention in our minds and in our hearts this morning. Things that are coming up this coming week, things that have occurred this past week, worries and anxieties that we may have. Help us, Lord, to be able to push those things aside by your Spirit's help to be able to hear what you would say to us this morning. And then, Lord, as we hear it, may we be impacted by it. May it May it change us. May we apply the truth that we learned this morning to our heart in such a way that it would make us changed people, that when we leave this place, our hearts would burn hot for you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work a work of revival in our hearts and do that which you desire because we are your people who have been bought by your blood. We acknowledge that this morning and we praise you for being the God that loves us. In Christ's name, amen. You'll notice that the second point there on your outline is another C, and it's the word church. And the reason I've got that there is I'm going to do my best to follow this similar outline for the rest of these sermons. But this one is the, this is a, this, the letter about the church there in Ephesus. We likely know more about the church in Ephesus than in any other church in the New Testament. And the reason that's the case is, is because we see how historically it came into existence. If we go back and read the book of Acts, Chapters 19 and 20, we hear about, we read there about the Apostle Paul and the ministry that he had there in Ephesus and how the church began and was was started there. And then, of course, we know that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesian church named Ephesians. And, And so we have that letter that tells us more about the church. But not only that, Paul's letters to Timothy were written to his young protege, likely while he was serving as the pastor over the church in Ephesus. And then Furthermore, tradition tells us that John actually replaced Timothy uh, as the leader of the Ephesian church, and his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were likely addressing issues that the Ephesian church faced. 
And, and so Jesus writes to this church in, 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 in Ephesus, and based upon what we read here in verse 1, we recognize that Jesus is the one who is infinitely qualified to evaluate the condition of the Ephesian church because He is the one who, who holds the seven stars in His right hand and who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus makes it clear that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the actual seven churches. Now, while there's some debate with regard to the precise meaning of the term angels that, that Jesus uses there, I mean, is He referring to actual heavenly representatives or guardians of the churches or is He referring more to the, the presiding ministers and the bishops over the churches while that may, be a, that may lack complete clarity, what is abundantly clear is that Jesus holds those angels in His right hand and He walks among the lampstands, both of which indicate His authority and His judicial power. Jesus is the divine overseer of the churches and He walks among them and He inspects them and He sees what they are doing and He takes note of their actions and He takes note of their inactions. When he writes to hear the church in Ephesus, he begins by speaking about their actions. He says, I know, Jesus knows what your works are. He knows your labor. He says, I know your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil. Specifically, down in verse 6, you'll note that Jesus acknowledges this. He says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, much has been written about the Nicolaitans, but the fact is we know very, very little about them. Not, not much has, has, has lasted through time to tell us exactly who they were and what they believed. What we do know with, with absolute clarity is that Jesus hated their works. He did not like what they did. And what we see is that the Ephesians fell in line with that same understanding. They too hated the works of the Nicolaitans. They opposed the things that they did because what they did was in opposition to the Word of God. Back up in verse 2, Jesus continues. He says, You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now, if, if we were to have gotten, received in the mail a letter from the one who's the divine overseer of this church, and he said to us things like this, while we would think, wow, that is wonderful. It's just a, it is a fantastic thing that he has said, and, and rightly so. In fact, note the next C on your outline. The third one there is, is a, this is a letter of commendation. He, gets a, a, he, he commends them for the things that they do, and he commends them in three distinct areas. Number one, he commends them for their toil. You see, they were hard workers. Jesus tells them, I know your works. I know your labor. These, these believers were active. They were busy in the service of God and others. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, surmises that these Ephesian believers were fully occupied in entertaining the lonely and, and nursing the sick and teaching the young and visiting the aged. He says, no doubt some gave hours of their time to making and mending for the church. Perhaps others spent leisure hours writing or cooking or cleaning or organizing. The church of Ephesus 
was a veritable beehive of industry, he says, and their toil was famous. Every member was doing something for Christ, and they were diligent and they were conscientious. The Lord commends them on their toil, but notice that He not only praised them for that, but He also commended them for their tenacity. That's the second point there. Their tenacity. Depending on your versions that you're reading from, you'll notice that the words patience and endurance and perseverance, those words appear there in your text. We know that the Ephesian church had been exposed to opposition. According to to Acts chapter 19, no sooner did the church become established there in Ephesus than than those those who were there were impacted by the gospel and the teaching began to take place, and, and they stopped buying and, and, and going and, and, and casting all of their uh, idols before the, 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 the idolatry there in, in, in Ephesus for uh, Diana, who was worshipped there. And, and suddenly all of those who had been producing those, those little idols began to get worried about their bottom line, and they rose up and they caused trouble for Paul. Well, by the time that this letter is written here, four decades have passed. Paul's been dead for decades. And nevertheless, what we come to understand is that the unpopularity of the church and its members still linger. And consequently, these believers understood what it was like to encounter hard times. They understood what it was like to have to to persevere under trial and persecution. They had endured. They had tenaciously held together and held together in the church for each other. And that tenacity, it actually helped them do something else that the Lord commended them for. Notice that the Lord also praised them for their commitment to truth. Their commitment to truth. Jesus tells them, you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. These believers were blessed with discernment. And furthermore, having had Paul and and Timothy and, and John as pastors and teachers, these believers had been blessed to sit under some of the sharpest theological minds in the early church. And with those blessings, these Ephesian believers could smell a rat. They could ferret out false teaching. They knew how to take what was being told to them and compare it to God's holy word and be able to decide that doesn't match up. And they could call those folks out that said they were apostles when they were not. Back in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian church, he tells them in verses 29 and 30, he says, I know that after this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Well, by the time of Jesus' letter here in the book of Revelation, those wolves had come. Ravenous beasts had gotten into the church and into the sheepfold. False prophets had been sowing their seeds of dangerous doctrines. But the Ephesian believers had held firm to the truth. They had learned to do exactly what John commends them to do in 1 John 4 verse 1. That is, they tested the spirits to see if they were from God. And their resistance to the Nicolaitans serves as an example of their commitment to truth and to orthodoxy. Notice once more the last line of verse 3. I think it's really a good summary. He says, you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Jesus' commendation of the church is that he commended them for their toil and their tenacity and their commitment to truth. To quote Stott once more, he says, what a splendid church the Christian community in Ephesus seemed to be. It appeared to be a model church in every way. Its members were busy in their service, 
patient in their sufferings, and orthodox in their belief. What more could be asked of them? Likewise, John MacArthur has written, he says, from every angle and perspective, this looked like an exemplary church. On the surface, it appeared to be a strong, pure body of faithful believers. G. Campbell Morgan, he writes this, if the master visiting the church to which we belonged uttered such words as these, should we not feel that they constituted the highest commendation that could possibly be passed? And yet... The letter is not finished. See, Jesus Christ, who back in chapter 1, verse 5, is described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the King of Kings. This, this Jesus who is described as being the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, He who, according to chapter 1, verse 14, has eyes like a flame of fire, can therefore see all things that, and can even penetrate down to the very depths of our souls so that he can know even the very things that motivate us to do the things that we do. Well, this Jesus then tells the Ephesian church in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The English Standard Version translates it this way. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That leads me to the next point. It's the complaint that Jesus has. And his complaint is about abandoned agape. Agape is a Greek word that describes the love that is described here. In Jesus' commendation, we see all, all those wonderful things is followed by a complaint that says to the Ephesian church, you've abandoned your agape for me. You have left, you have turned your back on your first love for me. We should ask what this all-important first love that the Ephesian church had left actually is. In answering that question, I think it's also good that we go back and get a little historical context of the Ephesian church from Acts chapter 19. And we look at the time when this church had first come to understand who God was and what Christ had come to do for them from the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And when we look at that passage and we read of the extraordinary miracles that God was performing through the Apostle Paul, and we see about the, the spread of the gospel messages it took place, what we begin to recognize is according to Acts 19 verse 17, when, when all of that began to happen, fear fell upon all of them. Luke writes, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was magnified. And many who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts had brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And then Luke says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, if you were to read this story, and if you were to come across that passage there in Acts for the very first time, and you were to ask, well, what was it that caused them to, to do that? What caused them to, to make such a drastic change in their life? What caused them to act so differently from how they had acted before? You would come away with an answer that was nothing other than the intense, 
all-consuming love of the Lord Jesus Christ because He had saved them from their sins. It was their recognition that Christ came and and would pull them out of the darkness of the magical arts and their, their worship of false idols and pull them into the light of His glorious gospel and had given them a name, written it down that would never be erased and that He had called them to Himself. And because of that, they were willing to get rid of all of the other things that had ever held first place in their lives. And they came and they got rid of all of their magic books and they refused to take a profit on the things of which they had committed their lives to before. And when you observe all of that, you realize that for these Ephesian believers, their greatest treasure was Jesus Christ who had saved them from the penalty of their sins and had given them a hope of eternal future in heaven with Him. But now, as MacArthur writes, the burning hearts that they once had for Christ in the days after they had been delivered from the kingdom of darkness had flickered and faded over time. Four decades had passed between the early days of the church and Jesus' letter to them. And the passion of that first generation had cooled and the second generation simply followed the pattern that had been handed down to them. And their collective devotion to Christ was being replaced by dutiful coldness. And while they maintained all the right external behaviors and held to doctrinal orthodoxy, their service to the Lord was no longer prompted by their original fiery love for Him. It was tending toward rote behavior and mechanical piety. In his commentary on this passage, James Hamilton describes abandoning that first love in very vivid modern day terms. He describes it this way. He asks, what is it that happens to people between the wedding day, so joyous, so earnest, so sincere, and the day the divorce papers are signed? What happens to parents between the day the child is born and the day they complain about that bothersome, frustrating brat? What happens to us between the day a loved one is diagnosed with some awful condition and the day the loved one whom we cherish becomes a burden. In each case, he says, divorced spouses, frustrated parents, burdened family members, what happens is a loss of first love. Gradually, almost imperceptibly, what was done once from a passionate fervor becomes little more than a duty and a chore. See, when we come here to this passage, what we realize is that the resurrected Lord Jesus walked among the lampstands of the churches. And when he looked at the church at Ephesus, he said this, you do a lot of really, really good things, but you do not do them because you love me. And as Warren Wiersbe has written, labor is no substitute for love. Neither is purity a substitute for passion. The church must have both if it is to please Him. Now what I want you to notice is that Jesus doesn't merely state His complaint against the churches there in Ephesus. Rather, He goes on to give them a plan of action of how they should address their situation. And notice the next point on your outline is the command. And that command comes with a threefold Letter threefold understanding. First of all, Jesus says, Remember therefore, 
from where you have fallen. In other words, go back in your minds, back to the spiritual heights that you once occupied when Christ first set you free from your sin. Remember the joy that you had in when you first contemplated the fact that you had been redeemed and that heaven was your eternal home. He says, go back and remember the fervor with which you first attacked the Word of God with voracious appetite when you wanted to hear a fresh word from God daily. And so nothing would get between you and your desire to understand God's Word. Go back and remember what that was like. Remember that feeling that you had inside of you where you were willing to give away anything and sacrifice anything in order to follow the God who had called you to be Himself. He says, go back and remember that. That's step number one. And then he says, repent, repent. Literally, repentance means to turn around. It means to leave the direction that you're currently traveling and face the other direction and go the other way. Scripturally, whenever we come across repentance, it means to resolutely and to completely turn one's back upon one's sin. And it means in this context that you should turn away from the things that have made you lose sight of the infinite treasure that is yours in Christ Jesus. It means to turn away from the things that have dulled your appetite for God's Word. It means that you need to turn away from the things that cause you not to want to spend time in prayer before the Lord. If these things hold no longer hold any value for you, then friend, the Lord is calling you to repent to leave behind all of those things that have taken a greater priority in your life than He has. So we must remember, we must repent, and in the third, we must resume. He says, go back and do the first works. Go back to where you've fallen from. Resume the former state. The things which you remembered, go back and go do those things again. One has put it this way, make prayer and Bible study a priority. Make church and make worship a priority. Make witnessing and make meditation upon God's Word a priority. That's how we are to turn from the way that things used to be and the way that they have gotten to back to the way that they should be. Remember, repent, and resume. Jesus says this is what you must do. Or then we come to number six, you come to the next C. It's the caution. He says, if you don't do this, I will remove you. I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus makes it clear that he would not tolerate a church with diminishing love for him. If they would not repent and renew their love for him, the Lord promises to snuff out their lampstand. Now, honestly, when I got to this part this week, this is where I had to kind of just stop. And I had to think and I had to chew on this. And this had to ruminate in this old North Hall boy's mind. I had to really let this sort of get to me. because, I, Wait, wait, hold on. From all outward appearances, this church was doing everything right. They worked hard. They, they persevered under trial and they persevered with the truth. They knew doctrine. They knew how to apply it. And I believe if most of us, if we were moving to a new area and we were to come across a church like that and we walked into it and we did our evaluation of it, we would think to ourselves, this is a church I want to be involved with. This is a church that I want to link up with and join. After all, from our perspective and in our, in our opinion, what more could we ask for? But brothers and sisters, Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. And what He thinks... And how he assesses a church 
is the only assessment that will make any difference. And to this Ephesian church that had all of these things going for it, Jesus tells them that unless they repent and unless they return to their passion and their love for Him, He will remove them. He will, he will take away their witness. His message is so clear. It's turned back. Turn back to me. Do not abandon your love for me. So, so what happened with this church in, in Ephesus? Well, from what we can piece together from church history, the, 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 the church in Ephesus experienced a little bit of a revival. They repented, and, and, and its light began to shine even brighter. In fact, what a letter that was written by Bishop uh, Ignatius of, of Antioch to the Ephesian believers in the beginning of the 2nd century really commended them for their great love of Jesus Christ. But, as history goes on to reveal, by the Middle Ages, the church in Ephesus no longer existed. In fact, there's not even a city there. John MacArthur notes this. He says, if the church in Ephesus could be brought down from such great spiritual heights, should we expect any different action from the Lord on churches today succumbing to the same failures? We must guard our hearts and we must cherish our first love for Christ. In fact, that's the exact nature of Jesus' final words, not only to the Ephesian church, but to us as well. Notice the final C, the seventh point on your outline. It's the word call. And I want you to know that that call that Jesus makes he says there in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, that is nothing less than a call for us to comprehend the importance of this letter. To comprehend what Jesus is saying to us. You see, Christ's warning to those Ephesian believers is just as applicable to us here at Ivy Creek as it was to them. If our hearts grow cold toward Christ, if we turn away from Him and abandon our love for Him, and we turn our affections toward other things besides Him, if we stubbornly refuse to remember and to repent and to resume, He may very well extinguish our life. John Stott says the church has no light without love. Only when its love burns bright can, it, can its light shine. And he goes on to say many churches today have ceased truly to exist. The buildings may remain intact. Their ministers may minister and their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed. It has no light because it has no love for the Savior who bought it with His own blood and shed it so that He might save them from their sins. Brothers and sisters, we must comprehend this message. Furthermore, as Jesus tells us, we must also conquer. We must conquer. Jesus concludes His message by saying to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Jesus will use the same sort of ending again and again throughout His letters. And in each case, it emphasizes the blessing that comes to those who overcome, to those who conquer. And in this particular letter, Jesus links conquering with being promised free access to the tree of life in God's paradise. Now, the last time that humanity had free access to the tree of life was when Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. But because of sin, they were banished from the garden. And, and we, just like them, have been under the death sentence ever since. But I want you to know that the tree of life makes a reappearance 
in Revelation chapter 22. And it symbolizes eternal life with God in heaven. And so how must we understand what it means when, when Jesus says that we have to overcome, that we have to conquer? How must we understand this? Well, according to what he says in verse 7, I think the Apostle John had also given us insight because in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, he writes this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So this first letter from the Lord that we have looked at today is truly a letter that calls us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it calls us to a renewed passion, a renewed passionate love for this Christ who has first loved us by laying down his life in exchange for ours. And in light of that message, it is a letter that leaves us with a stark warning. And I have stated that warning in my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Although a church can be faithful in everything it does, if it abandons its first love, it will lose its usefulness to the Lord. We who are members and those that are a part of Ivy Creek Baptist Church that the Lord has given us ears, we need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In fact, I think we ought to even take that sermon sentence and make it personal. You see, although you can be faithful in everything else that you do, if you abandon your first love, you will lose your usefulness to the Lord. I want to ask you this morning, does that apply to you? Do you have a passionate love for the Lord and for His people? Or, if you're honest, over time, has that love for Christ and has that love for His gospel, have you allowed it to grow cold in your life? I want you to know that the Savior walks among us today with those piercing eyes of fire and he looks into the hearts of every single one of us in this room and I want you to know his assessment of what he sees when he looks at us and his verdict upon our lives is the only one that matters and I want you to know that on the authority of God's word Jesus wants you to rekindle your love for him his desire is that all of us who make up this body of believers, a church that is strong, a church that is busy, a church that lives sacrificially, a church that perseveres in the truth, He desires for each and every one of us to stop and to examine ourselves to see where we have allowed our intense love for Him that we once had to grow cold. And having identified those things, what He desires for us to do is is for, to those things that we have abandoned our love for Him for, that we turn and we re-abandon our love for Him again. For some, when you truly examine your heart this morning, maybe you come to the conclusion that you don't have that love because you've never come to know Him. You've never truly accepted Him as your Lord and Savior. You've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ to be your Savior. If that's the case, then I want you to know there is a Savior who gave His heart for you. The one who washed you in His blood who stands ready to receive you and to bring you to Himself. But if that is the case and you have come to Him and you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, 
then I believe that he wants to rekindle that flame. And as one has stated, there's nothing more powerful in the world, no greater light in the darkness than a church of people in whom Jesus dwells and who are deeply, passionately, devotedly, sacrificially in love with him above all else. A church that's not simply going through the motions, but rather is rendering service while being completely given over to an all-consuming love of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God, and may it be said of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you reached down and saved us by your own matchless sacrifice on the cross, something that none of us as sinners could ever do for ourselves. And Father, I pray that you'd help us in this room this morning to go back to that moment when it really, when the Spirit of God first got our attention and brought us to himself and reminded us of where we had come from and help us to see that 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 joy and that fire that we had, you desire for that to continue. Help us to be able to identify the various elements of our lives that have pulled our thoughts away from you, caused us to become cold in our affection. Help us to be able to realize those things and to be able to, to repent of them, to turn from them, to begin resume doing those things that you would desire. Not because those things will save us, but we do those things out of service to the one who has done for us what we couldn't do. So I pray this morning that if there be one here that doesn't know you and has never come to that understanding of that their sin separates them from God for eternity, and that Christ has come to die for them, that your spirit would, would move in their hearts today to bring them to that understanding and that conviction. Lord, I just thank you for a church that you give us and that you provided for us here where we serve you. Now we pray that everything that we do would bring glory and honor to you, for you alone are worthy of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.